praise team. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 7, 7 to 11. A few years ago, Andrea and I packed up the kids, and we took a family vacation 12 hours to the west by car ride to Colorado. We stayed in Estes Park, which is just outside Rocky Mountain National Park. We stayed right there on the edge of Rocky Mountain National Park, in a little house there. At the time, our kids were four, two, and four months old. And I know what you're thinking. What were they thinking? To be honest with you, I don't have an answer for that question. <laughs> uh, to say that we had illusions of grandeur would be an understatement, I think. Now, when you think about Rocky Mountain National Park, you imagine these snow-capped mountain peaks, no cell phone service, praise the Lord, right? The aspen trees that only grow a mile above the surface. Oh, you can see us, it's already back there. Um, it was September, the leaves were changing, the weather was about 70 degrees in the sun, and about what felt like 20 in the shade. It was glorious. But in our, our minds, were these, we were going to go on these wonderful hikes in the mountains. We're just going to see the beautiful scenery. We're going to let the kids, the boys especially, pick up as many stick guns as they wanted to, beat as many trees and rocks as they wanted to. And we started out on the trail, and about 100 feet in, we took this picture. Look at that. Look at that family. So sweet. Everybody's looking at the camera and smiling. Everybody's happy. Every year we take a family picture and we get a little ornament with the year on it and we put the little picture in the ornament and we hang it on the tree. So that, that picture is, is hanging on our tree. Not just yet. We're not crazy people. We don't put up our Christmas tree this early. But it will be hanging on our tree. But if we had taken that picture just a bit later it would have looked completely different. All right, The wind on the trail picked up until it was freezing cold. We had every bit of jacket we could muster wrapped around us as tightly as we possibly could. And by the time we had made it about halfway on our short little trail hike, the kids were done. I mean, they were absolutely done with hiking. Andrea and I, between the two of us, were carrying all three kids. I had Natalie in a baby Bjorn on my chest. I was carrying Grayson. She was carrying Andrew. All three kids were crying. Our arms were about to fall off. The only thing that I could tell myself was just a little bit further. Keep going. Put one foot in front of the other just a little bit further. Keep going. It seemed like that trail was never going to end. You can take the picture down now. <laughs> there are a lot of parallels between the experiences of hiking on a trail and the journey of a Christian life. The Christian life requires faithful persistence to just keep going. In our text this morning, Jesus is going to urge us. He's going to push us. He's even going to command us toward faithful persistence. Last week, we dealt with 
two warnings that Jesus gives to us in our text, both of which were framed in the negative like warnings. Don't do this. This week He's going to command us in the positive. It's also to be heard kind of like a warning to, to keep going. This is how you have to, to keep approaching the, the, the Christian life. How you have to approach living inside the kingdom of God while here on earth. And so what we find is that we're left not just to figure it out on our all, all on our own. We're not left in a vacuum as if we just have to find our own way how to make it as a Christian in this world. Instead, Jesus gives us some welcomed assurance. This is how you do it. And with that in mind, let's look at our text in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And we've referenced this passage uh, a number of times already back when we were in chapter 6, because in chapter 6, Jesus taught us how to, how to pray. And there were many times where we looked forward to this passage. I even cited it on a number of occasions to discuss Jesus' teaching on prayer in, in chapter 6. Now, so some of this is going to be a reiteration of things that I've already said, and some of it's going to be a little bit newer, but I think the content bears repeating. One, because Jesus repeats it. Two, because Matthew repeats it. And three, because now I'm repeating it. Okay, so it's worth, it's worth repeating. So when, when I preached on the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, the opening line was, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, I opened with an illustration from the life of George Mueller. And some of you who are here then will remember uh, that, that opening. Some of you who have slept since then will not, but that's okay. Uh, but I referenced him several times throughout the, ser- the, the sermon. George Mueller, as you'll recall... Uh, was it ran? It was a missionary who ran an orphanage in in England. Ran several orphanages in England during the 1800s, and has been has become really infamous for his advocacy for prayer. And um, in fact, he had many needs that he he took copious notes, wrote everything down almost in a journal, every request that he ever made of the Lord. And in, in all of these times running these orphanages, he never made any of his needs known to anyone else except the Lord. He never mentioned these needs to anyone else. He only prayed to the Lord that these needs would be met, and he recorded them in his journal. Um, Mueller had over 50,000 specifically recorded answers to prayers in his journals. 30,000 of which he said were answered the same day and many of them the same hour that he prayed them. Now, I received several questions after that sermon about George Mueller just talking and, and about, the, uh, about prayer and how those kinds of things work. And, and I received those questions, I think, because there are some sermons that a preacher preaches or some things that the Bible just plainly says that honestly sound too good to be true. They, they, they sound too, too wonderful. Is that, is that, really, uh, is that really right? And, and let me just say, in our defense, as we read these scriptures, as we hear these sermons, prayer is simultaneously wonderful 
and very strange. We're praying, after all, to a sovereign God of the universe who the Bible says knows our need. Jesus says knows our needs before we even ask him. So it's not like in prayer we're telling him any new information, something that he doesn't have already. But yet he desires for us to come to him in prayer and communicate with him regularly. And so you think that by this point in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus gets toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus would start doling out all the caveats. All the, all the things, okay, I know I promised this earlier, but let me give you all the fine print. You know, the, except when, when you ask Him in prayer, you have to ask like this, and, and you can't do that. Don't do that, oh goodness. And, and almost under every circumstances, God is going to say no. He won't answer your prayer, just, just so you know. And the side effects of prayer include nausea and vomiting and an upset stomach. As you can see in our text this morning, Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he doubles down in confidence that the Lord is going to respond to you, that he hears you and he's going to respond to you, to anything that you ask for. He even says there in the text, everyone who asks receives. So as we take this text, it's going to be really important that we understand what Jesus is saying and we also let the rest of the Bible speak when it comes to prayer so that we have a, a balanced understanding of what prayer is accomplishing here and what Jesus is telling us to do. And so there's three observations that I want us to make as we go through our text this morning. Here's the first one. That we should be persistent in our petitions. Asking God for all things that we need. We should be persistent in our petitions. Asking God for all things we need. Uh, look at verses 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. The opening line of verse 7 uh, has three commands there that Jesus gives to us. He gives us ask, seek, and knock. Now, when a parent gives a command to a child, there are several different ways you might give the command to your child depending on what it is you want him to do and how frequently you want him to do it. So, for instance, you might say to your child, go tell your brother it's time to go. And so what would you expect for that kid to do? He would go and tell his brother, it's time to go, and then he'll come back. Or as my kids do, stand at the bottom of the stairs and go, it's time to go, right? And then come right back. But what would we say to our kid, what command would we give to him if we wanted him to go and continue telling his brother until his brother put his shoes on and got downstairs? We might say something like, keep on telling your brother it's time to go. We call that an iteration. Go and tell him in an iteration. Continue telling him. Do it again and again and again and again and again until he gets his shoes on and comes downstairs. The command of Jesus in verse 7 for us to ask and seek and knock has the force in the way that it's written of an iteration. So Jesus is, is not saying to us simply ask, seek, and knock. He's telling us keep on asking Keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Further, there's a progression as you see ask, seek, knock, from asking to seeking to knocking. 
If your spouse is right next to you, you would just ask her a question. If she's not next to you, then you're going to have to go seek her to ask the question. If she's behind a locked door, it's best to leave her alone. Okay, that's where the analogy breaks down. But if, you, if she is behind a locked door, you're going to have to knock on the door to be able to find her. There is a progression to the methods that you'll use to find the person to ask them the question, particularly if the situation is dire enough. So the command that Jesus has given to us here has the force of not only repeatedly asking God for help or asking Him for the things that you need, it also has the sense of moving heaven and earth to bring to Him your petitions, not letting anything stand in your way. So think about this for a moment. If the matter was urgent enough, but you needed to ask your spouse a question, or if it, sorry, if it wasn't urgent that urgent, and you needed to ask them a question, you might just wait until the next time that you saw them. So you would just hold off until the next time that you saw them. Instead, here we get the opposite. Jesus is painting a picture that it is a, that prayer especially is a, a constant, ongoing form of communication between you and your Heavenly Father. Saying to yourself, look, I I have to continually speak to the Lord about these things. Even as you go on about your daily life, as you take the next step, as you encounter the next thing, it's constantly praying and asking. That's what Jesus is presenting it to us. To keep on doing it. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Keep on asking. Or as Paul will say later, pray ceaselessly. This takes the idea of reserving your prayers for the morning time or the evening time and really just blows it out of the water. We shouldn't merely pray like that and we shouldn't teach our children to pray that way either. It should be morning, noon, and night and every time in between. Prayer should instead be a persistent form of communication with God. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, A Christian should carry the weapon of all prayer like a drawn sword in his hand. We should never sheath our supplications. Never may our hearts be like an unlimbered gun with everything to be done to it before it can thunder on the foe. But it should be like a piece of cannon, loaded and primed, only requiring the fire that it may be discharged. He was saying that we're constantly interpreting life as needing communication with the Lord. We're constantly, we have our our prayer gun cocked and loaded and needing only just the slightest cause. Just give me me an excuse to turn to the Lord, go take my mind before the throne of God and ask Him for wisdom or guidance or provision. But what is it that we're supposed to be asking for? Well, Jesus doesn't really put any restraints on it here, so we're left to assume that He means anything that we need. But if you look at verse 8, he says, everyone who asks, receives, seeks, finds, knocks, it will be opened. Everyone who asks. Now, this seems like a tremendous promise. 
And that once again, we look at it and we go, There's no, can that possibly be true? It just looks too good to be true. Is Jesus shooting straight with us here? Or is he the son that's got a hold of his dad's credit card and he's just going out charging everything on it? You get a car and you get a car and everyone gets a car. That's what it feels like here, the promise that he's made to us. Again, there are two ditches on either side of the road. We come back to this metaphor time and time again. There's two ditches on either side of the road we don't want to fall into. One has me tempering the expectations of what Jesus lays out in Scripture here what, and saying something that he, he, saying he doesn't mean what He clearly seems to mean in the text. The other ditch has me not weighing in, letting the rest of the Bible speak when it comes to the matters of prayer. And let you leave this church thinking that God is a genie and all you need to do is ask and He'll grant you wishes, as many as you want. Well, John, the Apostle John, says in 1 John, who presumably John was there as Jesus is teaching, John says in 1 John 5, 14-15, and this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of Him. So John understands Jesus to be saying here that everyone who asks according to the will of God receives. Everyone who seeks according to the will of God finds. Everyone who knocks according to the will of God, the door will be opened to Him. Meaning that Jesus is, what Jesus is describing here does not make you Aladdin and God your genie. That you can just say whatever you want and He'll grant you whatever you want uh, unhindered. However, Scripture is also clear that God has a desire to give to His children when they ask. It's very clear in Scripture that He has a desire to give to His children when they ask. Putting John together with James, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, there are things that you need that you could have if you would ask God for them. That's the implication. It's flat out what James is saying. But those things must be in accordance with His will. And the only way to know His will is if you ask. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is be faithfully persistent in your prayers to the Lord. Why? Because His answers to your prayers tell you what His will is. The second thing that I want us to see in this text, we should believe that He answers us as a father does his children. We should believe that He answers us as a father does his children. Look at verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, I want you to see very clearly the underlying premise of these three verses. Verses 9, 10, and 11. The one praying 
to God is coming to him as a child is coming to his father. The first illustration that Jesus gives us here is the son asking the father for uh, a necessity of bread. Which, of the, which father would give him a stone? Something that, that looks in appearance like a loaf of bread. Which one of, you, which one of your fathers would, would trick you and think that he's provided for you, but he really hasn't? Something uh, that would resemble a loaf of bread. Or, or which one of you, if, if he asked for a fish, would give him, give him a serpent? The parallel that he's drawing here is from the lesser example, you who are evil, to the greater example, your Father who is in heaven, who we would assume there, we would put in the text, who is good. That's the implication. So if, if you, an evil father, meaning that we're naturally uh, bent towards wickedness, but we still are able to understand what it means to give to our kids a good gift, which of you, even though you're evil and you can still give good gifts, how much more then would your father, who is good and holy and heavenly, give to those who ask him? How much more does he know what good gifts are? Jesus' whole argument in all of this is that God responds to you like a father responds to his child. Yes. This is the reason that we can ask and receive. That we can search and will find. That we can knock and the door is open to us. Because the, what, what, what father... Which one of us, if his child was seeking us, if his child was asking us a question, if his child wanted a response to us, would run and hide? So even us, who by nature are evil, will respond to our children. If we'll respond to our children by answering them this way, which, how much more will God, who is good, respond to us? But understand that the context of this entire paragraph, in fact, the context of Jesus' whole sermon is directed at God's children, not at the whole world. It's directed at God's children, not at the whole world. The privilege of having prayers answered in the way that Jesus is describing is not available to every person in the world at this moment. It's only available to His children. So if you walk away from this sermon thinking all prayers are created equal or that God responds to all people praying the exact same way, then I haven't clearly communicated what Jesus is saying here. What you have to understand that the, that only, the only privilege of having your prayers heard by God is only afforded to His children and not to the rest of the world. John tells us in John 1.12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. The people that the Bible defines as being children of God, as having the right to call God Father, are those that believe on the name of Jesus. Now we have, a, we have an issue in our, in our culture in particular, but, but I think this is has gone back for 2,000 years in, in every culture, about what it means to actually believe on the name of Jesus. Now, many of us think that, that it, it means that someone agrees with us, that Jesus actually existed, that He came down to the earth, maybe even that He died on the cross, maybe even that He rose again. 
But John again tells us a couple of chapters later in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You see what he did there? He says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son does not have life. So he sees belief and obedience as really synonymous when it comes to believing in Jesus. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Belief, he says, is not simply believing that Jesus exists or existed. Belief is not simply coming to church. Belief is not just being a good person as you define it. Belief is not merely thinking that you're, what you're doing is right or doing the right thing. Belief is specifically obedience to Jesus. It would express a similar s- sentiment if you were to say to me that you believed your house was on fire. If you believed your house was on fire, that means that you're actually going to do something. You're going to get up, you're going to move outside, you're going to call the fire department, you're going to do all kinds of different things if you really believed that your house was on fire. But if you said to me that you believed your house was on fire, but you continue to sit on your couch watching your favorite TV show, I'd have serious doubts as to whether or not you actually did believe that your house was on fire. Similarly, biblical belief in Jesus means that it's incumbent on you to confess your sins, to repent from them, and to walk in obedience to Jesus' commands. Coming back now to the prayer that Jesus is talking about, Jesus calls God the Father to those who call on Him. He's talking about people who are in this category, who are children of God. There are many in the world today who want the benefits of, that come with being a child of God, like Jesus is telling us. You know, oh, I, I really like that about everyone seeking and finding. I, I, like that, I like that piece of it. I like that, that part about obeying, uh, that everyone receives. I, I, I like that part. But want nothing to do with what it actually means to be a child of God. When it actually comes to living lives of faithful obedience to Christ, of repenting of sinful disobedience, of identifying what that sinful disobedience is in the Scriptures and turning to the Lord in repentance and faith, being poor in spirit, mourning over sin. We don't want any of that. But I'm sorry, is in accordance with Scripture, dog doesn't hunt. He answers us in our prayers as a father does his children. But the question that you have to ask is, are you a child of God? It's a central question I think that we have to wrestle with is, am I the child of God? If you aren't, then friend, I beg you to come clean. All of us have to. Confess to him your unbelief. Confess to him your disobedience to his word. Confess to him your need for Jesus' death on your behalf. Confess to Him your neglect for worship that He is rightfully due as your Creator. Confess your dependence on Him for righteousness. Trust in Jesus for salvation. More often than not, what you have to help people see in the Gospel 
is not the truth of the Scripture, but the truth that your own righteousness isn't going to cut it. By default, we tend to think of ourselves better than what we really are. As I've said many times before, I'm willing to give myself a lot of slack, but the person next to me, I'm not. That's true of every single one of us in this room. And typically in sharing the gospel, particularly with unbelievers as we talk through it, more often than not, it's convincing them that your own self-righteousness is not going to cut it. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The implication there is that your own righteousness is not going to cut it. You need the righteousness of another. Which is why we trust in Jesus for salvation. Because He is the only one who has come down to live a perfect life, a life that we never could. And instead of taking the righteous rewards, He gave them to us by faith. And suffered the wrath of God on the cross on our behalf. So that by believing in Him, we can have salvation. And this is what you're coming to. That you're, through Jesus' righteousness alone, we can approach God in prayer as a son does his father. And we have the promise that he hears us and responds to us as a father does his son. And the last observation that I want us to see, and what I think helps put all of these in perspective, is that we should know that he only gives us good things. We should know that He only gives us good things. Look closely at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? God, who is in heaven, only gives good things to His children. God who is in heaven only gives good things to His children. God who is in heaven only gives good things to His children. Do you believe that? That He only gives good things to His children? Do you actually believe that? That He only gives good things to His children? This is where the rubber meets the road in prayer, I think. Knowing that God only gives good gifts to His children. Jesus has told us just a few verses back, for everyone who asks, receives. But now I think this puts it in perspective, good things. I think the phrase, good things, puts it all in perspective. You will only receive good things from God. Now, I think most of us in this room would agree that a cookie is a good thing. Amen? If you don't think that a cookie is a good thing, I immediately don't trust you. If you start asking questions like, what kind of cookie? You're out. I don't trust you. It's a cookie. That's all that needs to be said. One cookie, doesn't matter what kind of cookie it is, one cookie is better than no cookies. It's simple math, okay? It's science. I've really not ever met a cookie that I don't like. In fact, my children came out of the womb loving cookies. You don't have to teach a kid to love a cookie. They just look at it and they know they like it. Right? And on any given morning, three-fifths of my household wants cookies for breakfast. And, 
And in a moment of weakness, when my wife is weak, four-fifths of the house wants cookies for breakfast. When I want cookies for breakfast, we get cookies for breakfast. That's what, that's what happens when all five of us are in agreement. That's what happens. Uh, no, but Andrea and I don't give them cookies for breakfast. Why? Because we know what's good. What sorts of things that they should have for breakfast. Now, if you were to ask my kids, are cookies good for breakfast? They would tell you yes, I think. I would probably tell you yes. But as the adults, we're responsible to know what is actually good for breakfast. Similarly, not all prayers are created equal. Not all requests are good ones. Not all requests are for good things. Now, they seem good to me. Well, in fact, everything that I pray seems like a good thing. Why would I pray it if it didn't seem like a good thing? Of course I pray good things, what I think are good things. But if I received everything that I prayed for, everything that I thought was good, I'd never suffer. Ever. I would never suffer. No one close to me would ever suffer. I would be your best friend. You would never, ever suffer. All of my friends, my kids, would all be, be believers in Jesus. Every single one of them. My kids would be obedient at all times. Every time. Now, how come God doesn't grant me all of those things? They seem like good things. They seem like great things. Why wouldn't He grant those things? The answer that we get time and time again in Scripture is because it must not be good for me. Because if it was good for me, He would give it. In Romans 8.26, Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Remember the context of Romans 8, going all the way back to verse 18, is all about suffering. So, even in our prayers... Paul says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, Spirit intercedes for us. There's me praying for healing, for an end to suffering, but it's mainly because I don't know if I can utter the words, please let me suffer more. When would I ever utter those words? I don't know if I ever could, but the Spirit intercedes for me. Because he knows what is the will of God. He intercedes on my behalf. Because really, I don't know what's good for me. How does God determine what's good for me? Well, he says it in the next few verses in Romans 8. In 28, which is the next verse from what we just read, he says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. Now, there's a promise. I like that one. For those who are called according to His purpose. 
For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does He say? He predestined us to what? To be what? Why did He do it? He says to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the good. When He says all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His that's the good that He's talking about is being conformed to the image of His Son. That's what all the good gifts that He gives us are working towards. That's what the reason He pours out all the resources of heaven to give us good things is because the things that He gives His children, the good gifts, is that which conforms us into the image of His Son, into Christ-like obedience to His will. Into people that are poor in spirit. People that are humbled and broken and contrite over sin. And to people that are repentant. Reminded of what the sculptor once said. I think it was Michelangelo. I can't remember. It's off the top of my head. But he carved a statue. I want to say it was of, of Moses. And he, they asked him, how did you do that? And he said, it was simple. I started with a block of marble and I chiseled away everything that didn't look like Moses. With our lives. That's the picture of what God is doing. Chiseling away everything that doesn't look like Christ. Some of those things I can muster up the strength to pray for. Lord, give me this. And He grants it to me. Some of the things I would never pray for. Lord, let me suffer more. The Spirit intercedes because He knows what is good for me. Now I want to put all this together as we think about what this means for us. Draw some direct lines. There are some in this room that are going through a really tough season of life. It may be anything from intense family issues all the way to life and death situations and really everything in between. There's some, enough struggles in this room to go around. But for some, every day is a struggle. Every day is a fight for hope. Yeah. Every day is waking up in darkness and going to bed in darkness. Yeah. You're halfway down the trail, and it seems like the wheels are starting to fall off. Jesus' words to you in this text is to be persistent in prayer. Yeah. To be persistent in prayer. Keep going. Keep going. Just a little further. Prayer, in other words, helps to put one foot in front of the other. Amen. Think about all the things that we've heard from the scriptures about prayer. Not just in this sermon, but in the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Jesus tells us back in Matthew chapter 6 to ask for our daily bread, and we take that to mean... Take everything one day at a time. Paul tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We take that to mean that you have help in your prayers. You're not alone. Jesus tells us to pray to our Heavenly Father. And we take that to mean that your prayers are heard because you're a son or daughter of God and He loves you and He cares for you and He listens. 
John tells us that if we ask anything according to his will, he'll give it. He will respond. He will respond. Paul tells us that he's working all things for our good to, those, to conform us into the image of Christ, and we take that to mean that everything that he does for you is good. Everything that he does for you is good. Whether you think it's good or not, you'll see one day, hopefully, definitely, that it was good. Prayer is such a strange and wonderful thing, but what the Scriptures have told us is that in prayer you will see the will of God for your life. In prayer, like little else, you will see the will of God played out for you in your life because if it was good for you, He would give it to you. If it was His will, He would give it to you. There will be some things that He doesn't give to you and maybe one day, maybe one day you'll be glad He didn't. Maybe one day you'll see why He didn't and you'll be glad. There are other things that you didn't even know why you prayed it. You just said it. And it shows up near immediately. Or maybe it shows up years later and He brings to mind that prayer that you prayed just offhanded one day. And you thought, you know, I did ask the Lord for that. And look at that. He has been faithful to me and He's provided it for me. I didn't even realize what I was asking, but look at that. I prayed for my wife that way. I didn't even realize. I didn't realize what I was asking for. And one day she just showed up on my doorstep. She just showed up. There she was. God gave her to me. And I didn't understand what I was asking for. I didn't know all those things. How could I have? I was a stupid kid. But there it was. So faithfully persist in prayers, never being afraid to ask your Heavenly Father for what you need. He doesn't disparage your requests. For others in this room, we're just beginning on the trail. We're taking the family picture. We're still smiling. Everyone is still happy. The trail has just begun. It's difficult to develop a prayer life during these times because our flesh wants to only cry out to God when things are going wrong. But a deep and abiding prayer life needs to be developed now. now. While you're at the beginning of the trail. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Let that not be said of us. May we as children of God who come to our Heavenly Father every day in faithful persistence, ask Him for what we need through the study of His Word, faithful persistence in prayer, we come to know what the will of the Lord is for our lives without question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us hearts of prayer. Lord, we don't know 
what to pray for as we ought. Your word tells us that and affirms that in us. We are short-sighted. We can't see past the end of our own nose. And so some things we ask for, we have no idea if you're going to provide those things for us. Or even if you should. We don't know if those things are good for us. Or if we're simply being foolish. But we're grateful that you bear with us in patience. And that you love us. For those that are hurting in our congregation, for those that are sick, for those that are weary, we pray for relief. We pray for healing for their body. Lord, we want to keep them with us forever. And we'll continue to ask you to heal them. Recognizing that it's yours to grant. Only you can do this. We've seen in our short time together as a church, you heal individuals. We've seen you answer our requests in a number of capacities. So we know that it's not beyond your reach. But we entrust it to your wisdom, knowing what is truly good for us. Lord, for the rest of us who are beginning our journey, bring us to our knees in prayer. Help us to be a praying church. Show us what it means to be a praying church. A church that entrusts everything to your care and wisdom and that comes together on Sunday rejoicing over the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're children of God. That we're welcomed at the table through Christ's blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us as you're able, as we respond to God's word in song and with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Mm -hmm.